You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show on 710-KURV. Here's Sergio. We say welcome back to our Congresswoman, Monica De La Cruz, joining us on 710-KURV, the Sergio Show. So I understand you got some committee assignments already, Monica. Agriculture and financial services. First thing popped into my head on financial services. Well, that's, um, that's your bailiwick. That's part of your strength, right? How, like how many years were, were you selling, uh, representing insurance services here in South Texas? Absolutely. Well, first, Sergio, thank you for having me on this morning. And both committees are a great honor. I mean, look, first and foremost, I am the proud granddaughter of a Mexican farm worker who is picking melons and eventually built a brick house from, from picking those melons. And so it's a perfect place for me to be, especially with the strength of agriculture and farming in our community. And then, as you mentioned, I've been in insurance and financial services for over 20 years. So my background really lends itself uh, to financial services as well. And I think both committees are a great fit for the people of South Texas and for my experience. All right. Well, let's look at agriculture first because you know how it is, Monica. Water, water, water. It's always, always an issue of irrigation of water. And around here with a water shortage in South Texas, the watershed and how low we got last year was kind of scary. People talking about desal projects perhaps to either provide water for the cities and then you leave the river water for us. I just wanted to ask you if you've heard of any top issues that Washington could address for agriculture that maybe we can find you know, both sides of the aisle would agree on and move forward with maybe a few pieces of legislation that might get passed over the next couple of years that we have this gridlock up in D.C.? Well, water is certainly an important issue for um, infrastructure on our border. I've heard many times from uh, the farmers and rancher how um, the Mexico-U.S. border wall infrastructure program really impacts um, our farmers, our ranchers, and our communities. You know, I just recently uh, signed on a letter to talk to the president and to encourage the president to look at these um, at these areas. You know, we are our region, our region specifically is, you know, suffering from a lack of clean water supply that affects the, the, the environment and on the health side of things. We also have. Um, we want to make sure that we have safe drinking water and sanitation, water infrastructure. And then we just get to flooding, which is another infrastructure problem. So there's certainly a lot of work to do in Congress. And I'm proud to be able to to honor our community or have the honor to to represent the community in Washington in these issues. Monica de la Cruz, our congresswoman for the mid-portion of the valley, all the way up to areas just outside San Antonio, our guest right now on the Sergio Show. She's part of the Agriculture Committee in the House, Financial Services as well. I'm just curious, and it might be a bit too early to ask you this, but I don't know where things like online payment services or even, for example, cryptocurrency, much talked about cryptocurrency, if that's something that might fall, um, you know, for y'all in Congress at financial services to to consider. But uh, all this talk, I mean, what do you hear up in D.C. as far as maybe potential 
uh, if you're handling this potential regulation of cryptocurrency or maybe some of these online payment services. Any any word yet? Well, that actually does fall in the umbrella of financial services. And right now, Chairman McHenry, who will chair financial services, is placing the committee members such as myself on subcommittees. So we should find out in the next week what subcommittee I will actually be on. But absolutely, that is part of a financial services um, duties is to figure all of those things out. And as I said before, there's there's a lot of work to be done in Congress. And me particularly, I ran for Congress uh, in with three priorities. Number one, securing our border. Number two, bringing down inflation and the cost of living. And number three, bringing health care to all parts of our district. Sergio, you probably already know this, but there are whole counties in our district that don't even have a primary care physician. And this is completely unacceptable. So I'm going to closely study how we can get resources to our communities to improve health care. And after a century of one-party control, we need to make a change. It's not right, and we got to fix it. Congresswoman District 15, Texas, Monica De La Cruz, our congresswoman, uh, joining us on the Sergio Show. So how are you adjusting to life in D.C.? you getting used to it? Is it as pretty as you thought or stressful? What What's it like for you? Well, as the nation was watching, the first two weeks in Congress were certainly eventful. That's mm-hmm. for sure. You know, after not getting sworn in when uh, when we were supposed to and having a speaker battle, I think that is just what is to come over the next two years. You know, I'm proud to live in a country where we can have spirited debates over leaders, legislation, policy, and that we're not in China or Cuba, but we're in a place, the greatest country on this planet, where we can have those debates and it makes our party and our nation stronger. So I'm excited to get back to D.C. tomorrow and spend another three weeks in getting some of the legislative duties that I have um, on my plate out into the forefront and start working for the people. Yeah, I did notice some of the posts uh, you wore in the district visiting some of the folks you represent in various places here in South Texas. What's the word up in D.C.? I, I know you as a border lawmaker, you might, I suspect you'd probably be very popular with other lawmakers uh, trying to seek some solutions or at least shine a light on the Biden border mess that we have down here. You guys working on bringing another delegation down here? Um, you know, what's, what can be done? What might be done the next couple of years when it comes to border policy, any fix, or at least shine, shine the light on it? What, what's the plan? Absolutely. Well, first, I am already working on legislation, uh, one piece that will come out very soon called the PAUSE Act, and it is about securing our borders and making sure that we get to our Border Patrol agents the uh, the resources they need. And when I talk about resources, I'm talking about things like night vision goggles, uh, ATVs. We're talking about resources here that can help them do their everyday jobs. We absolutely plan on having delegations, both Democratic and Republican, 
Republican to come down here. You know, it's important that I, in my position, reach across the aisle to bring these people down here so they can see what uh, the DHS secretary has been doing, or should I say, not doing, and how the Biden administration's policies have just failed us over and over again. I want to say one thing, Sergio, is this past week, I did work on my very first piece of, uh, of legislation. It was a bipartisan bill with over 50 co-sponsors to honor Border Patrol agent Raul H. Gonzalez Jr., an agent who tragically died last month in the line of duty. And so we're renaming uh, the post office on Pecan in his honor. And really, I feel like it's a testament of our support for our Border Patrol agents and custom agents, men and women, who are putting their life on the line for you and me and all Americans. And so it is a first step in not only honoring these Border Patrol and custom agents, but showing them that I stand behind them and that I will follow through in getting them the resources they need. I got about a a minute left with yeah, Monica, but there's one legislation you might be able to work with other border colleagues, including, uh, for example, you know, like Henry Quayer, uh, try to change a policy over at Border Patrol where if they need a counseling or they need some time off to address stress because the suicides have been going up, maybe they can do that, but also be allowed to go back on duty. Sometimes they don't say anything, I understand. They don't say anything because they'll be pulled from the front lines and then they won't get a chance to go back to the front lines and, and do the border patrol thing. Maybe changing that policy would be worth looking at that and recruitment as well. Mental health is a serious issue in our communities, but among our border patrol agents with the highest suicide rate among border patrol and custom agents last year, this is a problem that we need to tackle. All right. Congresswoman, thank you for your time. Check in as often as you wish. Monica de la Cruz, our Congresswoman for Texas District 15 from the Valley. This is the Sergio Show. My focus right now on the Sergio Show is pain and the medicine for that and some of the abuses of these pain relievers. We hear so many headlines related to fentanyl. From Johns Hopkins University, from Johns Hopkins Hospital, he's an expert in pain, director of multidisciplinary pain fellowship at Johns Hopkins, is Dr. Paul Crystal. Appreciate your time, sir. Can we start with fentanyl? Because we hear so much about it in the news, about fentanyl, fentanyl this. So what is fentanyl, sir? What makes it so lethal, so deadly? Well, fentanyl is an opioid. Uh, there are different types of opioids. Fentanyl is considered a synthetic opioid. It's uh, quite potent, so it's about 80 to 100 times more potent than morphine. Uh, it's used therapeutically all the time, you know, by anesthesiologists, for example, in the operating room to reduce pain. And as pain specialists, we also use it to help reduce chronic pain in the form of a patch. So it it can be used. It is used very safely. Judging by so many headlines and all the smuggling of this, I'm guessing it's real easy to make. It's easy to make. We're unfortunately over the last several years, we've seen the transport of fentanyl across the border, especially I think from Mexico to California, Mexico, uh, perhaps to Texas and Arizona. Um, you know, but in addition to that, we've seen more and more people manufacture this drug, you know, illegally and, and use it and unfortunately die because it's extremely potent. It doesn't take very much to suppress breathing and then kill you. What happens to a person 
who ingests fentanyl, how does it poison you? What happens in the body? Well, all of these opioids like fentanyl, morphine, oxycodone, uh, they're molecules that then bind to specific receptors in the body. These are uh, receptors that lie on nerves and the spinal cord and the brain to reduce pain. And, and that's they're, so they're very useful for that reason. However, they also uh, tr- go from the blood to the brain. So it's called the blood-brain barrier. And when it does that, it gets into the brain, it reduces pain, but at the same time, it goes to other centers in the brain that control breathing. And when it does that, if the dose is high enough, then it prevents um, the brain from transmitting these signals to the lungs, if you will, to breathe. And that's what leads to death. It's this progressive inability to breathe. Pain expert from Johns Hopkins Hospital, Dr. Paul Crystal, my guest. There are some individuals, I would include myself in that group, I'm, re- I'm very afraid of painkillers. I have no idea if I'm the type of individual predisposed to being addicted to something like this. I, I try to tough it out. I just try to take like regular Tylenol. Uh, are there any other pain remedies that maybe are not pharmaceutical, maybe not even traditional that you're aware of? Maybe you would recommend the folks that might be dealing with some chronic pain, anything, I don't know, acupuncture, uh, stem cell based type of, you know, you give them your blood, they give it back to you, uh, hypnosis. Uh, I mean, what, any of these, a good idea to you? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we have a, actually a plethora of non-opioid therapies that we use for patients who have chronic pain. So we have medications like uh, certain antidepressant medications, believe it or not, that are useful for treating pain, uh, nerve pain especially. Uh, we have a whole host of injection therapies. Nerve blocks can help reduce pain. We now have boy, a, a burgeoning market related to neurostimulation that helps reduce pain in uh, along the spinal cord, even the what are called the peripheral nerves of the body. And as you mentioned, acupuncture can be quite useful, physical therapy, okay. and even hypnosis. I just think a lot of people are unaware that all of these treatments exist for chronic pain. Pain expert would be key for sure. You can start with primary care doctor. Primary care doctor could refer you to a pain specialist uh, who then would have usually a multitude of options to help reduce chronic pain depending on where it is in the body. Is it migraine headache? Is it neck pain? Is it back pain? Is it nerve pain, for example? I mean, we we really do have a whole host of therapies that can help reduce it. What is the the high from a painkiller? For somebody who's healthy and has no pain, what happens that that lures an individual, a healthy, otherwise healthy individual, to be a slave to a painkiller? Remember, addiction takes hold when you introduce a drug with rewarding properties like fentanyl, could be methamphetamine, could be alcohol, to a vulnerable person at a vulnerable time in life. Now, we've seen a lot of vulnerability over the last several years, especially related to the pandemic, you know, economic vulnerability, emotional vulnerability. And I think that's why we've seen an uptick in the use of drugs like fentanyl to ease that suffering, to reduce stress. And as you mentioned, if you increase the dose, if you you know use a high dose of an opioid, it can lead to euphoria okay. you know, and that sense of ecstasy, and that's what keeps that's what grips you. That's what keeps you. How long does it last for somebody that takes that plunge, that euphoria, that either normalcy or, or happiness that they feel? Well, it might it might be brief. It might be ten minutes. Uh, it could be thirty minutes. You know, depending on the drug that Jeez. you take, but. It's that, that process in the brain that is triggered that 
that leads you to use it and use it and use it over and over again. And, you know, addiction, when addiction takes hold, it really controls your life. So it's a lack of control. It's like your brain is being hijacked. All right, Dr. Chris. So it's, thank you for your time today, sir. I'm always in an effort to try to learn more about all these addictive things. Anything else you want folks to know I, I didn't ask you? Yes, I would just say if you are going to use a drug like fentanyl or you know somebody who's using it, make sure that you have the opioid reversal agent called Narcan. It's a spray and it saves lives. You're not talking about medicinal use or proper use of fentanyl. You're, you're telling people you get exposed to this or maybe you're abusing it. You need to have that Narcan nearby. That's what you're saying, right? Absolutely. Not if you're using it therapeutically, prescribed by a doctor. This is if you're going to the streets and you're buying drugs on the street. And really, we don't even know what's tainted with fentanyl now. Make sure you have Narcan available. Here's a question I forgot to ask you from from earlier. I wanted to get your quick thoughts on some of these reports I saw a few days back. One was from the University of Houston. There was another up northeast on how they're trying to blunt the addictiveness of fentanyl. Well, that's an intriguing subject. Uh, I think what we're trying to do is develop new drugs, new medications that can work like an opioid, like fentanyl, but doesn't have the same risk of death. That it does not have the same risk of suppressing breathing and leading to death. Okay. That's what that relates to. Not necessarily less addictive. It won't kill you. It won't stop your organs if you get too much of it. That's, that's well, the focus. Both. Both, actually. It's it, that it won't kill you and that it's not or that it is less addictive. Okay. That's what we're really trying to do now with regard to these other medications that, that are being developed for pain control. Are they close to hitting the market, or are we in the early stages of this new technology? I think early stages. But, you know, what's really exciting and I think uh, tremendously helpful is that they're studying the use of um, a vaccine right now against there we go. That's the in other New one. York. It's in clinical trial. Yeah, that's the, the other one that I saw before these. Thank you, Dr. Christo. Appreciate your time. From Johns Hopkins Hospital, it's Dr. Paul Christo. This is The Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids to running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURB. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. The Department of Homeland Security saying that they have developed a portable gunshot detection system. How does this help law enforcement? Well, let me bring in an expert in law enforcement, former Homeland Security Department advisor. Charles Marino is CEO of Sentinel Solutions. So let's start there, Charles. This portable gunshot detection system, why is it needed? How does it help police? Hey, Sergio, good to be with you. Look, this uh, you know basically follows the suit of the more permanent solutions that we see in many cities across the United States. There's two primary solutions. There's shot spotter and shooter detection systems. 
and its shooter detection systems that got together with the Department of Homeland Security to create a mobile version of what's already in cities. I think the capabilities here is it allows customers to now stand up and take down more portable solutions at a lower cost whenever there are special events. So this could be applicable for sports leagues. It could be applicable for towns if they host large events where there's mass amounts of people in a confined area. Do you know what it looks like? Can you describe it? How big, how small is it? Does it fit in an SUV? I mean, how, how practical is it? Portable is it? Yeah, well, look, it's very practical in terms of it's much smaller than its more permanent uh, counterparts. I would say it's going to look almost like a satellite dish on an extended pole that goes up and down uh, connected to a base unit. So it's small, it's user-friendly, depending on the size of the event or the location in which you choose to go with a, a mobile solution, uh, that will dictate how many of these units you need. But, you know, at an estimated cost of, of what I'm thinking will be around five to 6000 per unit, I think it's great for local police departments to be able to take advantage uh, of this technology where it's integrated with them. So should a gunshot be detected, should a mu muzzle flash be detected, uh, law enforcement will be able to respond and respond quickly. You said muzzle flash. Okay, you'll flash That's that right. out here in just Wow, even a muzzle, it can detect that. Charles Marino is a former Secret Service supervisory special agent. He's still in the law enforcement field, helping out folks in law enforcement with Sentinel Solutions as Charles Marino. We're talking about this new portable gunshot detection system. It can not only detect gunshots in an area, but also uh, muzzled uh, shots. Wow, that's that's pretty sensitive. How does that work? It is. Well, you've got uh, capabilities within the technology that will detect that flash. Um, and combined with an audio uh, alert that a gunshot has been detected, it will give the location uh, within a reasonable radius for law enforcement to be able to go respond to that area and canvas the area for both the shooter and potential victims. You know, the other thing, too, that it will allow law enforcement to do is to track the shooting. So if you have a true active shooter that's moving about uh, in a particular event, say with this mobile solution, whatever the uh, unit that the sound pings off of, it will give that shooter's updated location so that law enforcement can respond more accurately. Yeah, okay. How close to the gunfire does this system need to be? A mile, two miles, several hundred feet? Yeah, that, How does it work? Yeah, that's a good, good question, Sergio. Uh, you know, so the job of the technology is to scrub out all of the background noise. That's why there's very limited... Uh, civil rights, civil liberties concerns with this technology, because it truly does want to focus on the sounds. And it also wants to be able to decipher between, say, fireworks and, and a true gunshot, wow. which this technology can do. So depending on the, the environment, um, we might be looking at anywhere from a quarter to a half a mile, depending on how the sound travels. 
Are you saying that this technology is sensitive enough that, you know, we got a lot of geniuses around here in South Texas that on New Year's Day or Fourth of July, they'll go out there and shoot their guns in the air while everybody else is popping fireworks. Right. It will be able to detect the okay. difference between fireworks and people, you know, popping their guns illegally inside the city limit? It is it is that good, Sergio, wow. that it can rule out the overwhelming majority of other environmental sounds, which is why it's so deploy it's deployed so vastly across the United States. I mean, we're talking about big cities that have a lot of gun violence, right? Chicago, New York, Washington D.C. Um, so it's reliable. It is that first alert mechanism to law enforcement. One, to let them know that it's a potentially dangerous situation. Yeah. And two, where to respond and also issue alerts to the general public. Okay. Yeah, there's still, there still is that thing about, you know, response time. People need, actually need to, you know, police actually need to run to an area where... That's right. It, 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 it is still reactive in yeah. nature, Sergio. So right. it's just one additional security technology in the overall security plan. Well, based on what we have in the news, sadly from California. This gunfire detection system, and it looks like the technology is growing and being perfected exponentially, and that's, that's good. But does it only detect gunfire out in the open, open air, out, outside structures, well, or can it detect gunfire inside structures, let's say a dance hall? It, yeah, it can do both. So shot spotter. Uh, has historically been the outdoor solution, while shooter detection systems has primarily been the indoor solution. It's shooter detection systems that got involved with the Department of Homeland Security Office of Science and Technology to say, look, we think there's a need for a mobile, lower-cost solution uh, tied to special events uh, and other types of locations that may want to move these units around. So, you know, there's two primary companies that do this. They've been doing it for a long time. They're very good at it. And law enforcement relies upon it yeah. uh, very much as a reliable tool. Well, that's good. Well, I can see um, how this would be very useful in big events, parades and festivals and other events like that where you definitely need to protect a large crowd and respond immediately to a certain area, a certain right. sector, and you have some, something like that. I think you touched on this earlier. I apologize. I didn't write this down. Did you address uh, the cost, like per unit, how much this cost? Is it prohibitive? Is it affordable for police departments? All that. What's the, How much does this stuff cost, especially the new one? Yeah, so it looks like the new mobile system, uh, in my estimate, is going to be somewhere between $5,000 to $6,000 a unit. That's and, pretty good. You know, cost is a big issue. Uh, with security because executives at a corporation or city managers, when they're looking at their budgets, they're, they're always looking at security as what's the ROI, what's the return on investment. And then they apply the risk and they say, ah, this will never happen here, right? How many times have we heard that? Uh, we'll never have a mass shooting event here, it just yeah. won't happen. Well, I think as more and more of these situations, as you alluded to, are unfolding in cities and at locations that we wouldn't think we'd see them at, right? Um, I think that a lot of people are gonna see that this is not cost prohibitive, it's actually cost friendly, mm -hmm. um, and that it's really a mobile and highly effective tool in the toolkit.
And I think compared to other things that police departments are having to purchase these days, it's, it's right there. It's affordable. I'll give you an example, like these um, shields, these bullet shields, the ballistic shields. That I've got, I got some local school districts that are purchasing these at about seven two hundred dollars, seven thousand seven two hundred dollars a pop. That will you know protect somebody running into a building where kids or anybody's being threatened, shot, and and shield them as they're being shot at. You know, seventy two hundred, seventy five hundred dollars a shield. You got to have these uh, gunfire detection portable systems at about five thousand. That's that's pretty affordable. You'll never get a second chance. It only needs to happen once. You'll never get a second chance to have this technology. You got that right. Yeah. That's right. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate your work and, and all your information from Sentinel Solutions, former Secret Service Supervisory Special Agent, Charles Marino. This is The Sergio Show. Start your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday morning starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day. And special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We're letting you enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday morning starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Every two years in Austin, Texas lawmakers get a chance, in my opinion, to do what's right, to move us in a direction toward, again, my opinion. We need vouchers, at least an incubator in the state of Texas. Perfect time to talk about something like this during National School Choice Week. Randon Steinhauser joining us on the Sergio Show. Randon, when we do this National School Choice Week every year, what would you say is the emphasis, or how much of an emphasis do we put on on vouchers? Not only on a Texas level, but on a, a national level, because we have a little bit of competition right now with with charters. Of course, we've always had private schools, but we need to empower the parents, and I think one of them would be vouchers. Get that money in the hands for the parents and let them choose where to send their kids. What would you say, Randon? Absolutely. Well, National School Choice Week happens every year all across the country, and it really is a celebration of all forms of educational opportunity. Right here in Texas, you know, we at Young Americans for Liberty are actively pushing for a universal education savings account, which would allow parents to use those state-allocated funds, their tax dollars, to choose the way that their child is educated. Maybe it's in a traditional private school, but maybe it's also doing some homeschool curriculum, online learning, tutoring, therapy. You know, if there's one thing that COVID taught us as it relates to our children is that we cannot have our schools shut down. Parents need to be empowered to choose the best learning environment for their children. And we see now that all across the state of Texas, there is a huge push by parents more than anyone, to have that educational freedom to find the best fit for their child. In a perfect world, Randon, describe for me in your mind, in a perfect world, a perfect America, where parents have the choice and they get those resources and choose. Describe for me the landscape in any city, Texas, as far as 
what would happen in the educational system, the academic outcome, the funding, what would happen in an ideal world. And, and I think we could start in Texas with an incubator, but we can talk about that here in a second. So describe for me what the ideal situation would be in your mind. Sure. Well, I'll start with my own experience. You know, I'm the mother of four, including a set of identical twins. And so I can tell you firsthand that even identical twins learn differently. Every child learns differently. And we are now beholden to this system of a one-size-fits-all education delivery model that does not match the times that we are in and certainly doesn't allow a child's individual gifts to flourish or their individual challenges to be met. So I would say in an ideal world, every parent who, again, knows their child better than anyone would be able to hire or fire every single person that educates their children. They would, de- they would decide the who, where, when, what, and how of their child's education. So for our family, that looks like a blended model. My children are on campus two days a week at a local private school. The other days, we're at home learning together. I also hire out private tutoring for my child who's struggling in reading or math. We have a co-op with other homeschool families, 25 families from our local area, where we come together and pool our resources and teach different lessons each week, usually outside in nature, allowing our children to run around and enjoy the beauty around them. So, you know, I think more than anything, we want an opportunity for children to love learning and not be beholden to a government-run system that is leaving them behind. From Young Americans for Liberty, Randon Steinhauser, we're talking about the annual National School Choice Week. We're looking at the different choices, the different options available for parents right now, and where we could go if we were courageous enough to truly inject liberty into the educational process in our country. You, you, your family is a great sample, I think, Randon, with your kiddos. With your, you belong to a cluster of homeschoolers. Got private school, but can you? Well, can you just imagine the the benefits, the, the change in the educational landscape where you got real competition for those educational dollars? Everybody needs to ship shape from traditional schools to charter schools to private schools to homeschools. Everybody is fighting for those dollars. They're coming in. I think salaries would go up. I think tutor contractor salaries would go up. I think an emphasis, uh, re-emphasizing academics, the de-emphasizing all the wasted potential and kids wasting time with multiple clubs and not taking care of their education. I think all of that would improve. But now that lawmakers are meeting in Austin, what do you expect from this crowd, from this clan this year? I've been calling for the longest time, try vouchers at least in an incubator. Take one region. Take Metro uh, Midland Odessa. Just try vouchers with them. But in a so-called conservative state of Texas, we've never been conservative enough to try liberty. What do you expect from this law, from this group of lawmakers in Austin? Yeah, yeah let me briefly just touch on what you mentioned about educators and salaries going up. So I would argue right now we do not need to incubate. We need to go big because we have seen years of data across the country where we have these private school choice programs. We're actually moving beyond a voucher at this point. We're no longer talking about just you know, tax dollars going to a private school. We have seen through an education savings account, which again, allows a parent to use their dollar in, a mul- in multiple ways, whether that's tutoring, therapy, et cetera. What we've seen and one of the most exciting things 
is that the marketplace has responded with education entrepreneurs. So maybe those teachers who love their profession but feel really bogged down in the government-run system, guess what they're doing? They are going out and starting their own micro schools. They're starting their own programming, their own tutoring companies. And so I would say, while I love, you know, your enthusiasm to just get something done, the time has come. Other states have done it. Arizona has universal ESAs. Florida is on the cusp of it. Iowa just passed the Senate in the House yesterday, a universal education savings account. It is time for Texas to keep up with the rest of the nation and empower every single parent to do what's best for their child. Government funded does not have to mean government run. We've seen it across the country. We see the marketplace responding. And quite frankly, we see the academic outcomes and the happiness, the happiness of these children increasing more than anything. And so I would say now is the time. We're hopeful, but we have to put pressure on lawmakers on both sides of the aisle make the phone calls, show up in Austin, have your voices heard for universal school choice. Yeah. I say incubate because I know that this group doesn't have the courage to go full throttle in the state of Texas. Oh, well, it worked over there. It may not work for the state of Texas. Okay, Vato, then try one market, and it, you'll get all the state data that you need over the next 24 months before the next legislative session. But either way, you know, it, it's not the Democrats you have to worry about. It's the unions who own the Republican lawmakers in West Texas, Piney Woods of East Texas, where the school district is usually the biggest employer for some of these state representatives. And they're beholden, again, to the unions and to the school districts, and they don't want to rock the boat because that's where they get their political support. We've got a lot to overcome in the state of Texas. I just want to get your final thoughts, Randy. Yeah, you know, I would say... For those families in the Valley, I want them to remember what it felt like when the schools shut down, when they had mask mandates, when they're talking about vaccine mandates. They are trying to control our children. And the only way that we can reclaim that freedom is through educational savings accounts. We want your family to be able to go to the very best school or the very best learning environment for your child. It is the time. It's far beyond you know, the opportunity is here. We have the chance to empower families with educational freedom, and we, we certainly hope that that happens. And I really appreciate you having me on this morning. You bet. Thanks for the call, Randy. Keep in touch. We wish you the best in your efforts to truly inject liberty into the educational process from, uh, from Young Americans for Liberty. And again, marking National School Choice Week is Randy Steinhouse. This is The Sergio Show. When news breaks, we break in. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. We mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV and KURV.com. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Obesity affects nearly 15 million kids and teenagers in our country, according to the Centers for Disease Control. You know, childhood obesity, the rates have been continuing to rise over the past 10 years, about 10 to 15 years. 
from 17% of kids to 20% of kids, more government data. And now, for the first time, there's some medical reports that say that the American Academy of Pediatrics released new guidelines for treating childhood obesity, emphasizing the need for early and intensive treatment. And the guidelines for treating uh, kid obesity include medications and even surgery for the first time. Okay, let's talk with a health expert on this. She's a nutrition chef and author of the book, What's on Your Fork? We welcome Shelly Loving to the program. And I understand, Shelly, that you shifted gears from a different lifestyle because of a medical incident in your life. Let's start there. Good morning. Thanks for having me. You bet. Yes, that is correct. Uh, my husband, at the age of 41, had a massive heart attack uh, with 100% blockage in one of his arteries and no history of heart disease in his family. So we were shocked. And when he lived... I knew we had to change what we were doing because clearly it wasn't working. And so I turned to food to heal my husband. And I got so passionate about it that I decided to go to two nutrition schools and a culinary school because I was hmm. watching, physically watching my husband heal just by changing the foods that he was eating. So now I teach others how to do the same. Help us. Compare what you had, <laughs> compare what you had before, what your, your hubby, you and your hubby were eating before, and then after the heart attack, what did you change? What did you do? What, what were, you, were you guys eating? <clears throat> yeah, so that's the crazy part is I would not classify my husband and I as, in quotes, I'm putting air quotes, unhealthy. Um, we ate the standard American diet. I got on Pinterest and made whatever recipe sounded good. I never thought about ingredients. I just made it. Or we ate out with, with consciousness. We didn't eat super unhealthy, but it just wasn't top of mind. Um, we didn't eat out seven days a week or anything like that. But what I was making wasn't healthy and I didn't know it. So after I went to school, I learned it was just I had so many aha moments and which is why I teach other people this concept as well, is if we focus on an anti-inflammatory diet, then all of our health problems can have some help, right? Our body is chronically inflamed. And if we can lower that chronic inflammation by just changing a few ingredients and the things that we eat, it can have long-term effects on our health because our body needs an anti-inflammatory body in order for it to fight hard and stay healthy for us. It can't fight hard and stay healthy when it's fighting inflammation all the time. So the basis of all my teaching is really cutting back on the inflammatory foods so you can set yourself up for having an anti-inflammatory lifestyle. All right. What are the inflammatory foods? My top four are dairy, gluten, white sugar, and refined oils, refined or seed oils. Those are like vegetable, canola, things like that. <clears throat> Excuse me. And um, of course, dairy, everybody gets mad at me for that one. Don't shoot the messenger, but dairy is super inflammatory. It's made to grow a calf into a one-ton animal very quickly. <laughs> it's not meant for the human body to digest and consume multiple okay. times a day. Well, <clears throat> what about like low-fat milk or the super processed, super filtered 2% milk? What about that type of uh, dairy? I am just not a fan of dairy. Uh, you know, we, the, a big misconception in the American diet is we need fat. We need healthy fat in our diet. Our brains are made up of fat. Our body needs fat for energy and cell growth. And so low fat is not a good term. And so it's kind of deceiving. It's like a double-edged sword even because dairy is not good for us. And then if you do low-fat dairy, then you're eliminating the one thing that dairy is good for, and that's fat. So I'm, I'm not on board with that at all. I have a loved one obsessed with avoiding cholesterol, and thereby avoids cheese, avoids 
uh, you know, milk, anything dairy, uh, and just loves all this all this stuff. And it's looking for a vegetable-based you know, type of like milk product. What would be the optimum replacement for milk, like a cow's milk? What what type of milk would you recommend? That's because you know, like it seems like all sure, the other so, nuts have something to it. Yeah. Right, for sure. A lot of the milks that are non-dairy are also unhealthy because they put a lot of uh, preservatives in them and stuff. And so you need to read that food label. Um, my favorite brand is called Forager Project. They make all things non-dairy, and most of their stuff is made with cashews or almonds. So they have a really good cashew milk, and the, uh, the brand, again, is called Forager Project. Yeah. I usually get them at Whole Foods or specialty stores, but they are that is my favorite milk. It, I, I use it in all of my recipes, okay. and now I can't even tell the difference. Well, you said a key word, almond. Like, so I guess almond milk would be uh, the go-to. Try to find a brand that would be almond, right? <laughs> Yeah, almond milk would be good. Just be careful what brands you buy because a lot of them are mostly water. So I would definitely read the label and kind of look at your percentages. Like Blue Diamond, sorry to call you out, but it's just not a good brand. It's mostly water. <laughs> okay. You're not getting any of the benefits of the uh-huh. almonds. It just tastes funny. I tried it at one time to try to help a, <laughs> my loved one. and It just, I don't know, I can't get used to it. Uh, I my, tell people yeah. don't start with almond milk if you're going to go dairy-free because it, it, won't, it won't leave you wanting more. Um, start with a more thick almond and a creamy, I mean, a creamier nut like cashews. When you said gluten, uh, were you referring to bread? Is that what you're talking about? Gluten is three things, and a lot of people don't know what gluten actually is. It's only in three things, wheat, barley, and rye. That's it. It's not in rice. That goes the beer. Oats. Um, <laughs> For some, I don't drink. But. Everything in moderation, right? Okay. Everything in moderation. <laughs> she is author of What's on Your Fork, Shelly Loving. So I started this conversation, and real quick, just want to get your thoughts on new guidelines for treating kid obesity. Medications and surgery recommended for the first time, as we see the numbers continue to climb. Type 2 diabetes and kids getting fat. Just want to get your thoughts. What do you think about that recommendation? I bet you know what I'm going to say after hearing what my approach yeah. is. And I don't I, blame you. It makes you. me sad because yeah. I think it starts with food. I think it starts with what we're feeding our children and what habits we're creating in them. We're the ones driving through the drive throughs We're the ones buying the groceries. And it's our job and our duty and our responsibility to teach them as young as possible what they should and shouldn't be eating. Um, I do believe it starts there. I think very little of it is genetics. Yeah, and you go down the pharmaceutical path and the surgery path, that's, I don't know, friend. I think that's just a curse because then you get used to all that. I agree. You can't have enough of that. I agree 100%. Yeah. Like, why can't we start from the beginning and prevent it from happening instead of putting a Band-Aid on it after it's too late? Shelly, thank you for your thoughts. Appreciate it. Looking for your book, What's on Your Fork, author Shelly Loving. This is The Sergio Show.